Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. Henry Lopez with you, and my guest today is Carrie McKeegan. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. Carrie is an entrepreneur and the co-founder and CEO of Greenback Expat expat tax services. I knew I was going to trip up on that. <laughs> uh, Greenback expat tax services. Uh, they are a fast growing and exciting venture that provides what U.S. expats, people who live overseas, Americans who live overseas, what they need in regards to their taxes, uh, which need to be professional. They need to be accurate. They need to be hassle free and at a reasonable price. Uh, prior to starting Greenback, and we'll talk about how they got to starting Greenback. But prior to that, Carrie was a general manager in the partnerships team at Barclay Card in London, uh, managing both a joint venture and a partnership on Barclay Card's behalf. And before that, she worked at American Express, focused on marketing and general management. She's originally from New York, uh, but she was raised in Mexico City, has lived in Barcelona, in London, in Montevideo, in Rio de Janeiro, in Buenos Aires, in Bali. And this morning, she speaks to us from uh, Connecticut. So <laughs> she's been all over the world, and we'll get uh, into why that is. But uh, with that brief background, once again, Carrie McKeegan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you're in Connecticut for the summer, you, so you told me before we started recording, but you otherwise live in Bali. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we've been in Bali for, gosh, off and on for about almost eight years. Um, but we structure it so that we always try to try to get back home for a few months every year. So um, we have a, we basically um, leave on the very last day of school in Bali each year, um, come and spend the summers in Connecticut, which is near my family and my husband's family, put the kids in summer camp, make sure they get some good time with cousins and grandparents. And then we head back to Bali in um, just about a, a week and a half. Fantastic. So, so why Bali? How did you end up there? You've been many other places, but you've been there now, I think you said eight years. Why Bali? Yeah, we love it. <laughs> we absolutely love it. So, and, and I, as I say that, you know, we're, we're probably looking at another move pretty soon this time to Costa Rica, but ah. um, we, um, we, you know, my husband and I are avid travelers. We, we sort of always had this vision that we would live all over the world, and, and we have. And frankly, we didn't ever mean to stay in Bali for this long. We um, went in when my when my young, oldest son, who is eight right now, when he was one, mm. um, we went there, and we literally we could not figure out where we wanted to go when we started our business. We had this whole spreadsheet, and we were trying to look at all the different dynamics of time zones and best places with a little boy and, you know, all of these, all of these different things. And we went out to breakfast with a friend of ours 
And we're saying, you know, we're, we have this whole dilemma as to where we want to go. Um, we were living in London at the time. And he'd just come back from Bali and said, just go to Bali, you know, and, and take a couple of months. It's a place where you really are able to find yourself, which is definitely true to my experience there. And um, so we booked a one-way ticket meant to go for six months <laughs> and sort of um, have been there for, gosh, almost eight years. Wow. Now, is that where the business because you started the business in 2011, so it's about, or maybe you had already started the business at that point. Yeah, so we started the business in 2009 while we were still in London and still oh, in um, our our corporate jobs. And then we moved down to Bali. I guess it was probably sort of mid-2010, early 2011. Okay. So why Costa Rica now? Um, we're really looking for something very similar to what we have in Bali. So very sort of outdoorsy life, very... Um, you know, good for kids. So we've got three little boys and we love that they spend their days on the beach and outside and climbing trees. Um, and, um, and, but want to do that closer to home. <laughs> so really want yeah. to get back to somewhere that is not a, you know, 12 hour time difference from um, New York that isn't so hard to get back and forth. That isn't a, you know, 28 hour flight to get home for um, Christmas and, and summer. So we're looking yeah. to kind of replicate the experience we have there, but closer to home and also yeah. uh, Spanish speaking. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So how did you end up uh, growing up in Mexico City? Um, that was where, so my parents um, were, my, my dad had a job there. So we moved there when I was four and stayed until I was 10. And um, really it was just, you know, my dad was working for a bank at the time and that's where they, where his, his work brought him. So I was very okay. fortunate for that experience. Yeah. So you're you're fully bilingual and the kids are as well? Or how is that going? I'm fully bilingual. The kids speak a little bit of Bahasa, um, but they don't speak Spanish yet. So okay. we did have kind of a small stint in Argentina for about a year and a half um, of that. You know, we kind of tried to leave Bali and went back. <laughs> and so my, <laughs> my oldest son um, learned a bit of Spanish, but to be honest, that's kind of very deep in the recesses of his brain at this point. <laughs> well, maybe now, maybe now in Costa Rica, I, I failed on that. I, I speak Spanish, but my daughter, my wife does not. So I just, I just couldn't, couldn't make it happen at home. So my daughter has, you know, a little bit of knowledge, but not what I would have liked. I would have liked for her to have been bilingual. She should have been speaks considering how I speak Spanish, but so much of it is what you're immersed in and she was not immersed in it. And that's the big challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about your career after school. Just give me a, a brief summary of that, of what you ended up doing and, and what you were doing. And then we'll lead up to what triggered this desire to start your own business. Sure. Um, so I, I grew up in Westchester, um, right outside of New York City, um, after after my family moved back from Mexico City. And then I went to um, university at Columbia University in New York City. And so um, at that point, you know, I, I, as all of us do, I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, actually, for a little while. And then I landed in this role at American Express and really fell in love with the world of marketing. So after school, I went to American Express and worked you know, as you know, you know, American Express is, is just phenomenal in terms of branding and really kind of fell in love with that world of marketing and branding and had some really fun projects that I worked on there, including things like membership rewards and um, later in my career at American Express on a campaign called the Red Campaign, um, which was a campaign that was designed to give a portion of profits to um, donating for uh, to the Red Campaign, which was to um, help give money for research for AIDS in Africa. 
And so I, so I basically, you know, worked at American Express for several years, decided it was time to go back to, to business school. Uh, it was just at that point in my career. And that was right when September 11th happened. So I was living in New York City mm. at that point. I had every intention of doing sort of the Columbia University, you know, night classes or, you know, some sort of executive MBA and kind of keep going in my career. And as, as a lot of us in New York and kind of elsewhere in the world found that there was a moment when all of that happened that you kind of reevaluated what you wanted to do. And, and so we um, it really kind of triggered a, hey, you know, I kind of want to do something a little bit different maybe from that norm. So um, instead of, you know, pursuing either NYU or Columbia at night, I decided and my husband and I decided together to go to a school called ESA in Barcelona, which... Um, was a re really big risk, <laughs> right? So yeah. we were very much on these corporate paths, really, really good jobs, really kind of happy where we were, but we were sort of saying, you know, kind of want the adventure a little bit. So um, went and did a two-year uh, bilingual MBA at ESA, which was just phenomenal. I mean, we just met tons of really, really interesting people and really kind of helped stretch my thinking outside of the sort of, you know, confines of the, of the, the New York um, you know, world of, uh, you know, corporate world. And after that, the logical thing was to go to London um, for, for jobs. So I went, you know, back to London, went back to American Express, worked on the Red Campaign there, and then from there moved into a role in general management at um, Barclay Card. And your husband also had a kind of a, maybe not the same in marketing, but he had a career as well. You both were working for corporations in London, correct? Yep. He was more on the kind of banking and the side of the, the you know, banking world. And I was at, at financial institutions, but on the marketing side. Okay. So then what begins to lead you to first identify this problem that expats have? And, and how did that evolve into let's make a business out of this? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when both of us were in business school, we really had entrepreneurial ambition. So, you know, it was something where, you know, you you really, you know, I, I never had any problem working for big companies. I really enjoyed um, enjoyed that. And I enjoyed, you know, the camaraderie and kind of the, the leadership that I had in any of those roles. But I always had this vision that I wanted to do something for myself at some point. And really what triggered a change was when we wanted to start a family. So, you know, as you can imagine, working in big London or New York jobs is not the easiest work-life balance. And I was very much watching women that were doing really well in their careers, really struggling with that transition. So, you know, I had had some um, people that I worked with that were, you know, people that I very much looked up to that had situations where they they ended up leaving the workforce because they felt like they couldn't kind of juggle um, having a baby and working. And then I had others that ended up really, you know, trying to go for it and feeling like they were kind of failing their family at home. And so I, I watched enough of that to know that I didn't really want to have to compromise on both fronts. And so felt really strongly that setting up my own business at that point was the, the best way to be able to have a, a viable and successful career while at the same time having um, time with my family and the flexibility that that, that requires a lot of the time. So at that time, as you were going through that thought process, was this tax preparation idea already an idea or was it had that not come along yet? Did you not have an idea of what you might do? 
Well, looking back on it, it was kind of always there. <laughs> but no, we didn't have an idea what we wanted to do. So my husband and I went through this exercise and I remember it really vividly, exactly where we were in this coffee shop in London, because we spent like a week there trying to figure this out. And so we said, we're going to write down 100 business ideas. Okay. And they might be terrible, right? <laughs> like, you know, we're just going to throw them all out there and not judge them. And the um, criteria we we're using to evaluate is we didn't want something that tied us to any one particular location. So we didn't want to say, I'm going to start something that requires me to always be in London or always be in New York or anywhere, not because any of those places aren't fabulous, but because we wanted that, you know, freedom of mobility. We didn't want something where we had to raise capital. We, we kind of recognized that we needed that independence and we wanted a bit of the flexibility and kind of going into a situation where you are then reporting essentially to your investors just wasn't the right thing for us at that time. And so that was the criteria we used with, with all these business ideas. And I remember, I mean, we we're going through so many bad ones. And then when we landed upon this, at the same time we had been doing our taxes and it just kind of popped to mind and we were sitting there and thought, oh gosh, we should solve this. You know, I mean, we, we had a lot of friends who were Americans in London. Everyone had the same problem. You couldn't find anyone to do your taxes. And it was just this constant frustration. We'd been in London for, you know, four or five years at that point. So we, we had sort of probably loosely thought about that idea for years, but never really thought, oh, we're the ones who can solve this. And so when that idea came up, it was just really a natural fit. And you didn't dis. Neither one of you had uh, a accounting background, right? You were not CPAs. So, how did that still stay as an idea, even though you didn't have that background? Well, neither of us had accounting backgrounds, but both of us are very financially minded, okay. um, and so that didn't. I know it sounds like that must have been a deal breaker at the time, but it didn't feel intimidating <laughs> at all, actually. So, you know, and we we intended to hire CPAs that were experts. So we didn't feel like, you know, we're going to be the ones doing the tax work. We thought, let's go at this from a very different angle than a traditional accounting firm and set up a really niche business that identifies and, and hires accountants that have this particular specialty. So um, I think we got a little bit lucky, to be honest. The first accountant that we hired we're still in touch with. And she, wow. she really just kind of helped us to structure the business. So it, we almost kind of, you know, went and said, and, and we, you know, we, we talked to several people before we hired her, obviously, but we went and sort of had this whole conversation and said, this is what we're trying to do. And, you know, you know how to do this. And so while we were doing all of the business end of it, so trying to figure out how you develop questionnaires, trying to make sure that there was a sort of structured and systematic approach, thinking about, customer care and profitability and pricing and all of those things, we had a lot of help in terms of, you know, the the, the sort of tax side of things um, on the back end from this this lady who helped us out. Yeah, that's huge. We we all need those breaks along the way to, to make things happen. So how long from when you started coming up with ideas and you landed on this one as, okay, we're going to run with this one for now? How, how long was that period of time again? It was probably about a year, maybe a little oh, wow. bit less. Okay, um, so that's, we were pretty that's a pretty good long time. It, what happens a lot of times, because I've been through that, is you did you. I'm assuming at points you got frustrated and felt like, okay, we're just we're not going to find anything, or did you continue to think we'll figure this out? It's just a matter of time. 
No, it was more that we were working full-time, very, very full schedules, right? So we only had a little bit of nights and weekends to be working on any of this. So did you set time aside to sit down and brainstorm? Was it structured or was it just when you found a little bit of time here, a little bit of time there? How did you go about that from a scheduling of your time? And was it structured or was it just casual? No, it was very structured. So I'm a planner, right? So I I had spreadsheets and project plans and, you know, I knew exactly what we wanted to be doing and and within what time frame. Um, And then we hit a bit of a, some would say kind of good luck and some would say bad luck, but we hit a bit of a um, situation where the financial markets collapsed, right? So Dave went from being extraordinarily busy (laughs) to being pretty idle, right? So he went from being somebody who, you know, wasn't getting home at five o'clock to somebody who was getting, you know, was leaving the office at 5.01 when the financial markets collapsed. But he kept um, his job or was he in a commission-based situation or... No, no, he kept his job. He just wasn't working long hours, right? So he wasn't, you know, he had, you know, instead of getting home at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, you're getting home at 5.36. So it really kind of helped give us a little bit more time. Sure, sure. And so we we knew that it would take that much time to kind of pull all this stuff together. But we also, I'm incorporating in that time that, you know, a few trials. So it wasn't really like idea to the first customer. Within that time frame, we sent out a few, you know, direct mail campaigns to get customers. We did some testing out of different accountants. So it wasn't really sort of, you know, idea to, you know, there was a lot in there that was happening that was already business building within that year I'm describing. Yeah, no, that's great. So, so tell me a little bit more about that because that that's great to, to understand how you went about testing the idea Uh, You sent out like surveys or were you looking for potential clients to see if demand was there or to try to gauge demand? What what were you doing? We did a little bit of both. So we, you know, and our first kind of forays at marketing and kind of the list was very much kind of friends and family, right? So we said, well, we know lots of people here and we know lots of people who've moved to London from from business school. Let's kind of go to them and say, is this something that you're interested in? And if so, you know, would you like to try us out? And um, we did a little bit of that. And we found that people were very, very interested. But we also knew, you know, right from that, that obviously that doesn't build a business that just builds you a little bit of a trial. So um, that wasn't, you know, the, that was a good way of testing the waters, mm-hmm. but we didn't rely on that for any sort of mass market um, how advertising. Did you, how did you validate or at least have, at least have something to project from a revenue perspective and expenses, but how, how did you collect that data point? Um, so we looked at, so we, we did a few partnerships with um, local kind of expat um, websites. And at that time, there were also a few expat publications in London. And so I just used really traditional direct mail. Um, and some of it obviously wasn't direct mail where you're sending a, a mailing, but you know you can project what open rates you expect. You can project what click-through rates you'd expect. And I just used you know, guesstimates, I guess. Um, but they ended up being pretty close. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you looked at the quality of lists. And, you know, some of these lists, like, for example, one of the first companies that we worked with um, was a site called UK Yankee. And it was teeny tiny, but really targeted, right? It's all Americans living in the UK. Right? They all need tax preparation. Mm-hmm. So um, it was, you know, you knew you were getting at exactly the right audience. Yeah. So and you I, could project reasonably from that. And that has to be one of the keys, Carrie. You identified a service that you were very clear about who the niche audience was. 
Yeah. So there was no confusion there, right? A lot of times when we're coming up with ideas, that's one of the biggest challenges that we have is then identifying who our target audience here. But in this case, it was very obvious to you from the start who the target audience was. It's Americans living abroad, right? It's pretty simple. Yeah. And and one of the things that we still sort of say to this day is, you know, the, the kind of concept of niche until it hurts, right? Yes. So just be really, really, really focused and really um, sure as to who you're talking to and what they need. And don't let yourself get distracted, right? Yeah. So don't say, oh, now I'm talking to this person and they probably need these 20 other services. I'm going to go build those because I think that's how that's how companies can kind of get derailed by their own um, growth. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so 2009 is then when you started taking clients? Yes. And you kept your job? You and David both kept your jobs? Um, that was literally, so Dave um, then was offered the option of having, of taking a redundancy package. So for him, that was a wonderful time yep. to have that happen. Great so timing. it was very, very fortunate. Um, and I um, then was pregnant with our first uh, son. And so I basically had about a year of maternity leave because I was living in the UK at, the t- at that time um, and with intended to go back after, um, you know, the, the first year. And then, but our, our business had kind of hit the numbers that we wanted it to, to be able to leave. And so said, you know, this is a good time not to actually go back to my role. So it all kind of happened at the same time, but there were a few safety nets in there Yeah, no, no that, doubt. Uh, you know, allowed us to feel comfortable with it. Nonetheless, Carrie, I think a lot of people would say, well, I'm about to have a baby or unstable. David's unstable with his job or he might take a retirement. It's not the right time, right? We, we always come up with excuses. What do you say to someone like that? who says it's the timing isn't right. What are your thoughts on that with starting a business? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because it wasn't, I mean, if you look at it on paper, it was definitely a crazy time to be doing something like that. Yep. But I, and I think we could have made a million excuses, right? And if we'd made a million excuses, we'd probably be doing exactly what we were doing, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> and that wasn't what we wanted to be doing. So, you know, we did a few things that I think are smart for people to do if they're considering taking the plunge. We made sure that we didn't have any debt. We made sure we had a bit of savings. You know, we were being pretty frugal for a few years before that in London. Um, we knew exactly what our run rate was in terms of how much we were spending. And we didn't stay in London for very long while we were, you know, trying to grow a business because that's obviously a very high cost uh, location. So I think you can do all these things really, really in a way that's smart and has some safety nets. Um, I also think that sometimes, you know, one of the the sort of mental exercises that helped us is when you really kind of think about your your worst case scenarios. And I remember us sitting and kind of doing these these mental exercises that came from the book, The Four Hour Work Week, and it kind of walks you through this whole like, what ha- what's the worst thing that happens if you fail at what you're about to do? And you kind of just end up back where you are, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so, right. you know, for us, it was like, okay, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, here's what's going to happen. It's going to take us a couple more months to find a job again. And that's it, right? Like, you know, we're not unemployable. We have great relationships with um, our employers. We have good, you know, networks and we'd be able to just go back to London and get jobs again. So to me, you know, I felt like we were in a position where if, we were to, you know, fail at what we were doing, the worst case scenario is we'd wind up right back where we were at our starting point a year later with less money. (laughs) But that's it. That's it. I use that perspective a lot and I use it with my clients uh, of understanding what's your worst case scenario. And 
And it, it and a lot of us are fortunate. Our worst case scenario is better than than a lot of people's best case scenario. So we, we should be thankful for that. And to your point, uh, usually, and that's why we got to analyze how much we're putting at risk. In your case, you didn't go get a big loan. If I understood correctly, you didn't tap into all of your savings, perhaps. But again, that question is an important one. What happens if this fails? Because I do believe as we go into business, we have to be completely prepared to fail. We plan to succeed, but we have to be prepared to fail. So that's that's great that you went through that mental exercise. Was that, with that looking back now, was that one of the biggest fears then that you had? Or what other fears that you have that were creating resistance for you doing something? You know, a lot of it, and it, it's funny to kind of admit it or even think about it, but it was sort of this fear of what would people think if you failed? I think and, that's a huge one. I think that's I think that's number one for most people. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's funny because you don't want to think that you're that shallow, that it's sort of such an important thing to you, but it is, right? It you know, is. I mean, because, you're kind of thinking. We have relationships and we have family and friends and we, we, want, uh, we want their respect and admiration. And I, I think that's a normal thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that for us was, you know, we, you know, we were really fortunate that up until that point, both my husband and myself had been really successful in our careers. And, you know, I remember having conversations with all of our families that were like, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, you're both quitting your jobs and, you know, you, you have a kind of a newborn baby and, you know, just stick with what you're doing. You guys are happy and things are going well. And so if, if that hadn't worked out, I think there would have been a lot of feelings of, sort of, oh gosh, we should have listened to people um, and kind of embarrassment about the whole thing. So I'm glad we didn't listen to that. And I'm glad that, you know, I kind of followed our, our, our gut, but um, that I think was the biggest fear, that sort of fear of, of, you know, having lost something good at the expense of something that didn't work out and kind of having to fess up to everyone that maybe they were right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a huge one. I'm, and thanks for sharing that because I think we all, we all face that. I, I have faced that. Uh, even when I start a new business, there's some of that 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 creeps in of well, what if this fails? You know, I've I've made a big deal about how I'm starting this new thing and I'm so excited, and then it fails. And I've always had this philosophy, and it's kind of hard for me to explain that I think a lot of people, not maliciously, not even purposely, but subconsciously, they don't mind if we fail because it validates why they don't take a risk. Does that does that make sense? Um, especially our peers in the working world, they kind of resent a little bit that we've taken that leap because it's kind of what they would want to do, but they haven't found the courage to do it. Did you sense any of that? I think there's a there's a little bit of that, but I think most of it for for me anyway was that I'm a much more kind of you know everyone has a different relationship with risk, right? So how comfortable they are taking risks relative to the potential rewards. And I'm I'm pretty comfortable taking risks that would sort of deliver a higher reward. Whereas a lot of people would prefer to keep that much closer to the center. And so I think that that was more the conversations I was having was you're giving up something good for something that might be awesome, but actually keep the good thing. <laughs> and yeah. so it wasn't necessarily that I thought everyone wanted to do the same thing that I was doing and didn't have the the courage to, but it was more that I think they just couldn't understand why somebody would give up what I was giving up for something that was more um, risky, more unknown you, and harder in a lot of ways, a lot harder. Oh, a lot harder. Yeah. Do you think having moved around uh, as you were growing up, living in different places, influenced this perspective that you have on risk? 
Yes. So, and I talk about this a lot, actually, in the context of kind of my children and, and raising kids who have kind of an entrepreneurial mindset. I think when you see that the world has a million different ways of doing the same thing, and all of them are right, and all of them make sense, and, you know, it's just different ways of looking at the same problem, it kind of expands your thinking that you can do all something, you know, that there isn't one straight path in terms of either how you live your life, but also even just, you know, how you like products and services that you could create. So I definitely think that exposure to lots of cultures and lots of different people um, helps create that feeling that there isn't one straight path and that you can take a lot more um, risks and have there be a lot more potentially really good solutions. Yeah, I agree. That's been my experience as well. All right. So you started a business with your husband. So did you have any reservations up front about being in business with your spouse? A little bit. So, and we talked about it a lot because of course, you know, that's again, one of those areas that people give you a lot of advice about, right? Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Anyone who's done it before. So we, um, we were in a good situation. We had, you know, done business school together. Um, so we were, you know, we were together long before business school, but we had gone to business school together. And so we'd worked together on a couple of projects, you know, they just kind of match you up in different teams. And so we knew that we worked pretty well together. And we also knew that we had really complementary skill sets. So literally, if you kind of look at all of the different dynamics of, you know, what skills you might need in terms of running a business, you know, they're, they're, you know, Dave has certain areas that he's really, really good at. And I have other areas that I'm really good at. And there weren't a lot of things where I thought we were going to butt heads on decisions. And that was true. So that worked out really, really well. Um, where our fears lied was we thought a lot about kind of that diversification of, of revenue, right? So yeah. we didn't love the idea that both of us would be in the same boat in terms of how we could earn money. Um, and something that we didn't think about that became an issue later was how you separate out kind of work um, life and family life. So that sort of decision of who stays home with the kids when your son has a fever, <laughs> you know, how do you make that decision if you're both running a business, which we didn't anticipate at the time, but did become something later that, you know, um, I wish I had thought about a little bit more. Right. So to that end, are there any tips, rules, techniques you apply to to help make it work on things like that or or just in general, like discussing business and combining it with personal? Any tips that you all adhere to to, to help that? Um, yeah, well, I should explain. So the um, the business is almost 10 years old right now. And Dave it, um not exited the business, but sort of took a, a step back about two years ago. Okay. So I now run the business day to day. Um, and he still does, you know, a lot of things, right? So, I mean, it's kind of, you know, chief strategist for both of us, right? So we're both making some of those kind of big, big picture decisions. Um, he does a lot more of the um, uh, financial modeling and some of those things that he's just really, really awesome at. But I run the business day to day. So I'm the one who manages the team and manages all of that. And we made that decision because we were finding that startup phase where you're working together, we did really, really well on that, right? Like we loved, we loved what we were doing. And so we didn't actually really even mind the fact that it was kind of all encompassing. Um, you know, we were working all the time and talking about business all the time and it was fun and it was exciting and it was in growth mode and that worked really, really well. And then when we had a small team, it sort of felt like a family. And so it kind of worked, right? So people understood, oh, Dave's going to have a stronger opinion on that than Carrie. And so I'm going to go to Dave on this and, 
get his inside advice and it all kind of worked. But as the team started growing, we found that it was actually very difficult to have two people in charge. Um, we found it ended up being a bit duplicative. Um, so people would come to both of us on things. We would both be in a lot of meetings. Um, and we found that um, it was difficult from a, you know, as our kids were getting a little older, we now have three little boys um, that we needed to kind of create more of that, you know, who's responsible for making dinner if a meeting runs late and who's doing the kid drop-offs in the morning and all that. So, um, so now the structure is such that I run the day-to-day -day and um, Dave does more of the family day-to-day, um, -day, although both of us are sort of, there's definitely a lot of crossover. It's not as clean as, as you know, if you couldn't structure it exactly the way you want it, right? We have that flexibility. So it's not super, super clean, but it works really well for us. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, that, and that's such a great point. Even if this had not been how you addressed it, you would have had to really more clearly delineate who's responsible for what within the organization, or you would have continued to have that confusion what turns into confusion as you get bigger, right? And so that you had to address it one way or another. This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. And I invite you to schedule a free business coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business goals and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner, I understand the challenges you are experiencing, and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching session, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Um, going back, what is there one thing that comes to mind that you wish somebody would have given you advice on as it related to starting a business? Obviously, you got a lot out of business school. I'm sure you got guidance. But is there something you think back, boy, I wish somebody would have told me this? Um, something that I learned on my own that I, I wish I had had more insight on is not insight, I guess is the right word, but um, the kind of concept of traditional brand marketing techniques is important no matter what kind of business you run. And what I found is when we first started the business, I was very much used to this concept of kind of building us really, really strong brand and, and investing in that. And I questioned myself a lot because that was sort of when, you know, you had all these different internet marketeers that kind of would say, hey, if you just do this one thing, you're going to get a thousand customers in 20 days. And I'm like, oh, but that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel kind of like long-term growth strategies. And we didn't do any of those things. You know, we didn't buy lists. We didn't do any kind of shady SEO stuff. We didn't do any of those things. But I really wish I had known somebody at that point that had been in business for two years or young, you know, longer than me that could say, hey, you know what? You're right to resist some of that because, you know, you're 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 sort of focusing on a long-term brand and your relationship with customers, and this is good. I felt a lot of pressure to um, do some of these kind of quick and easy tactics that, in the end, are kind of fly by night. And it was totally right to resist them, but I remember just constantly being like, "Oh my God, am I just not up with the times, or you know, <laughs> am, I am I doing the right thing?" <laughs> like, and is it because it it would have attracted the wrong type of client? 
Well, like, for example, if you look at kind of some of the, you know, when we were first starting out, there was a lot of um, nuances as to what was ethical in the world of SEO. Sure, yeah. And I was like, we're not doing any of those okay. things. And a lot of our competitors did. Right. Yeah. And it was really awful. Like we had a lot of hits and I was like, I just don't think this is the right thing to do and I'm not right. going to do it. But I wish that somebody had who had a business that was a little more mature than ours um, would have been able to give me that advice that that was the right thing. Yeah. Um, because I felt like I was the, you know, Dave and I were the only ones kind of holding to our guns in a, in a, in a group of lots of people that were kind of learning these techniques and were like, Oh, you're crazy. You could be making so much money if you would just do this yeah. one thing, you know? And so that, that was kind of a tough point for us. It would have been nice to have somebody say, you know, stay the course, you're on the right path. Yeah. But, but how did you balance? Because we talk about this a lot on the show in fact, uh, last episode specifically on the difference between brand marketing that larger corporations like American Express can afford to do versus direct response marketing, which as small business owner, that's where we have to spend the money because we need it to give us direct results. How did you and how do you balance that so that, like you said, you wanted to build a brand, but we need clients. So how, how did you balance that marketing budget? Well, I actually think marketing budgets have totally evolved in the sense that, you know, if you look at, um, you know, when I was working for big companies, big, big budgets won, right? So it was very easy for a big company to outspend a little company. Whereas now, so much of it more is about, you know, the, the internet is free, right? So the internet, I mean, obviously not entirely, but there is a way for you to, you know, leave your mark as a small business just through good I don't know, good word of mouth, good relationships with, you know, other people online, good um, PR. And so we tend to do quite a lot from a um, brand, what I would describe as kind of brand marketing perspective that doesn't cost anything, right? So we're not taking out, you know, huge ads. We're just kind of building relationships with people, showing that we're good at what we do um, and letting that story tell itself. So we haven't really had to make a lot of those decisions. It's actually been pretty easy going for us in, in that regard. Mm -hmm. So can you give me an example of that? Are, are you talking about sharing information? Are you talking about a blog? What are we talking about specifically there where you're building the brand without having to spend much money? Yeah, not sharing information because since we're a tax company, there's no, there's very, 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 you know, firm standards around that. So we don't share any information at all. I mean, more like, for example, we've got, you know, relationships with probably 20 or 30 different um, expat websites. And what we do is we give them information about taxes and we stay really relevant and we stay really current and we're helpful and informative and not, you know, sales pitchy. And so they're really happy to share that information with their readers. You know, that's okay. one example. You know, other examples are, are, you know, just, well, our overall strategy is around, um, in terms of the way that we market, is very much driven by content marketing. So in the world of expat taxes, the biggest problem that people have is that they don't understand what they're supposed to do. So the government in the U.S., they're not living in the U.S., obviously, by definition. But even if they were, the, the U.S. isn't doing a very good job of explaining to people what they're meant to be doing, what, you know, in terms of all their filing requirements. And so people are really confused and frustrated a lot of the time. They're afraid that their passports are going to get taken away because they've done something wrong. They're afraid that they um, 
you know, that they're inadvertently going to kind of make some mistake and they don't really understand all the different rules or they're completely uninformed and haven't filed taxes in 10 years <laughs> and have no idea they're supposed to. So we do a lot of um, basically just, you know, research and writing on our blog and writing on other people's blogs to say, these are the facts, no scaremongering at all, because I think that's, you know, completely unnecessary. And, you know, really, we're just trying to empower people um, with good information. And so I think that's really kind of how we've built our brand. Um, so we haven't, you know, and that's, that we can do, that's in our gift. And it's, it's essentially free apart from obviously, you know, the spend you have for a marketing team to be doing that and accountants to be doing the research. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I meant by sharing information is um, you're, you're helping people educate themselves on the overall topic and, and then you're building trust and authority and hopefully they'll come to you to, to, to get these services, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, is there is there one thing, I mean, you, you, we've touched on what you learned at American Express. Is there one thing you learned in that marketing environment that you still apply today to market your business? I guess I would say that a lot of what I learned in kind of my big corporate roles, and, and I don't know if this exactly answers your question, but hopefully it does, was really creating a lot of structure and um, creating formal mechanisms to make sure that there are checks and balances in the way that you're running your business. So when I went to Barclay Card, I was running a, a very big team. And um, what I learned really, really quickly is that you needed to have, um, you know, like all of the kind of metrics and reporting and business reviews and just all of those formal mechanisms. And I have, and this is very exceptional, I think, or an exception, I should say, um, for a lot of remote teams, because a lot of um, online businesses actually operate in a very in a much looser way, I have used a lot of that structure in our team, and it's worked really, really well for us. I think actually remote businesses need more of that than less of it, and I think it's where a lot of companies fall foul, where they try to sort of move into this, you know, new way of working where everybody's remote, and they think, oh, I'm not gonna have meetings or business reviews or, you know, any of those things you think, well, you still need those, you know, just because you're not in an office doesn't mean you don't need that. So yeah. I've created a lot of that. Um, I learned a lot of that discipline um, at Barclays and I have carried that with me in our business now. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. The systems, the structure, the process on how we do things that, that also ties into a question I want to ask you. One of your focuses is on delivering uh, on putting the customer first and at the forefront, did you say, so executing on that, but to execute on that, I have to imagine, especially in a remote environment, you've got to have some of these tools and process to measure that, right? So that you know that you actually are delivering on that. Yep. And we are maniacal. So the amount that we measure is is really, I mean, probably a lot of people would say it's overkill. So, um, you know, to give you a sense of the kind of things that we measure and how we, we track it, we have, we look at... Um, all the, you know, we, we basically track every single question that's coming in and whether or not it is an issue or a question. Um, we look at, you know, all of the, the issues and for each issue that comes in, and I mean every single one, and we're fortunate that we don't have a lot of issues, but for every single one, you know, there is a um, person who reports against that and kind of, under, you know, obviously there's the customer service person that, that helps manage the situation. But then on the back end, on the same, in that same week, so the reporting's done each Friday, we have somebody that does a five wise analysis on that particular situation and really kind of fleshes it all the way through to make sure that we look at how somebody had that situation and dig 
really, really deep to make sure that no one would ever have a situation like that again. Um, and then embeds that across the team. So it's something that literally every single person in the leadership team is looking at. It's something that we um, measure on a daily and then a weekly perspective. But we, I think, take an extra step that a lot of companies don't, which is about doing that really deep analysis immediately to try to make sure that we're sort of seeing problems before they become um many, many problems or more likely seeing confusion. So I think a lot of companies kind of think of customer service as the absence of problems. And of course that's important, but we want people to be really, really clear on what's happening and to feel really good about their experience. And so when somebody just has, you know, when a lot of people just have kind of similar questions, you know, we try to really look, well, why are people needing to ask us that question? How do we make it simpler? Um, so we spend a whole lot of time on on that I read every single comment on every customer satisfaction survey as the CEO. <laughs> so that tells you a bit. Okay. Um, we're just, we take that very, very seriously. And which is why I think also we have really good repeat customer rates and we also have um, really good um, referrals. You know, so a lot of our business comes from other people referring fellow expats. And so, and so this approach, Carrie, often can have or create resistance from the team, but I, but I suspect that that's not an issue because it's part of your culture and you're hiring people that fit into that way of doing business? Yeah. No, everyone loves it. So I, I shouldn't say loves it, but everyone really embraces that way of thinking. So, you know, we we kind of, all of us put the heart, the customer at the heart of all the decisions we make. And that's one of the the company values that we have. And everyone has that company value, right? <laughs> so probably every single every single company says they do that. But I think one thing I've heard a lot from people after they've joined their team is every company I've worked at says they do that, but we actually do it. And that feels really, really good. Yeah. So why do uh, you hire CPAs and accountants, uh, various backgrounds, I suppose? Why do they want to come work for you? Um, a lot of reasons. One is that we have a very different model than a traditional accounting firm, right? So traditional accounting firms, where a lot of our folks come from, um, have kind of a, a pretty intense company culture, right? They're, you know, located in offices in big cities. Yep. And they're there's a bit of the kind of work for work sake that um, happens when you're in an office environment, right? So you're when things are slow, you need to be there till five. When things are busy, you're there all weekend. And accounting is very deadline driven. And so there's pretty long, intense hours without a lot of breaks. We operate very differently than that. So everyone who works with us um, works out of home offices. So they have that kind of freedom of location. There's no commutes. You know, we have a lot of people who, you know, decided to work, you know, at a, um, you know, out in the countryside somewhere in their, you know, family's old farm because they can now, <laughs> you know, they don't need to be near a city. Um, we um, very much compensate based on performance as opposed to just kind of flat salary. So it's on how hard someone's working, on customer satisfaction scores that are coming in from those folks. Um, and I, I, I like to describe it as that the accountants that work for us, it's more like they're running their own little mini business under mm -hmm. our umbrella rather than working in a job. Right. You know, it's a very different setup. So, and we, we also have a lot of the camaraderie, I think, that, um, many companies have, but, you know, you, we do not lack being in a remote environment. So we have things like high five Fridays where on Fridays, you know, we all sort of recognize each other for good customer satisfaction, um, comments that have come in or, you know, somebody, 
you know, tackling a particularly tricky situation or working on a project. Um, and then we have something called Get to Know You Wednesdays where, I don't know, someone posts like a silly question and everyone kind of checks in and posts pictures of themselves that weekend or what book they just read or, you know, any of those things. So it, it still feels like you're sort of part of a greater whole, even though you're not in an office environment. Yeah, very interesting, very dynamic. So do you have a, a corporate office of any sort? No. Everything is virtual. Nobody. Everything's has... virtual. Interesting. I heard in another interview you did that you don't use email internally to communicate. So tell me about that. We use a system called Podio. Um, and I often joke that I should be like their sort of, you know, sales rep because yeah. I talk about it all You're the time. Getting some money but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm not. There's no there's no association there. Um, but um essentially it's a tool where all of the chats happen, all of the conversations, it's like project management and collaboration all in one tool. And the you know, the really big advantage of it is one, you're all logging into the same place each day. But two, because a lot of us are in different time zones, when you're using email, you could be emailing somebody at two in the morning. And that totally makes sense because, you know, if I'm in Bali and I'm writing somebody at two in the morning their time, it's 2 p.m. for me. And that's getting delivered to their phone, right? And, and can you, you know, the sort of idea of somebody, you know, seeing messages throughout their dinner hour, throughout their morning hours, like is, is a really, really tough thing for remote teams and something that is very, very difficult to unplug from if you're working from home. And what's great about Podio is that all of those conversations stay within the context of this tool. Um, and so when you log in, of course, you're then seeing the messages that you got from people in different time zones, but you're not being interrupted by those all the time. Right. Um, and it's also just creates a lot of visibility. So emails, you either have to make the choice of CCing everyone you know, <laughs> you know, or having it go one to one. Whereas in the context of this collaboration tool that we use, you are kind of having conversations related to the particular topic. But in a lot of cases, that is free for anyone to look at, but not necessarily tagging them so they have to read every single thing. So it's easy to, to search, to look back on things, to kind of, um, you know, stay organized. Yeah, no, very interesting. Okay, so what uh, what's one of the biggest challenges you're facing now in your business as you go, you know, you're, you're stable, you're mature, relatively speaking, What's one of the things that's, uh, that you see as a challenge for your business now? Um, well, our biggest challenge right now, I have to say, is hiring accountants. So we're trying to grow pretty fast. We've done a whole lot of work over the last two years, um, kind of rebuilding our, our infrastructure. So we were on Infusionsoft about two years ago and moved over to Salesforce and built this huge, wonderful customer portal that launched at the end of last year. Um, and we've got so much demand from customers, <laughs> you know, we've just got sort of, and it's, it's a nice problem to have, yeah. I have to say, but we've got really, really good demand from customers and, um, a lot of applications from accountants to work with us, but we're looking for a very niche skill set and people who are extremely customer centric. So we're balancing that, um, desire to staff up quickly with making sure that we never do so in a way that compromises um, any sort of, you know, that doesn't do it so fast that you you really kind of maintain um, the quality of the team that you have now. So we are in, in deep hiring mode, but we're also um, staying very, very choosy. How do you go about that? Um, just give me briefly an understanding of your screening process. Do you use uh, evaluation tools, uh, testing, 
Uh, is it all yeah. interviews, combination thereof? Yeah. So we, um, it's a very, it, there's, it's a multi, multi-step process. So somebody applies on our site, they get asked a few questions. If their kind of resume fit and cover letter meets our internal criteria, they get an assessment um, that looks at their expat um, tax skills at a very kind of basic level. Um, if they pass that assessment, then they have kind of a screening interview um, with the lady who looks after our accountant team right now that is more kind of trying to figure out fit with the team and overall background. Um, if they pass that, they do two um, tax returns, two fairly complicated expat tax returns mm-hmm. that are mock returns that then are reviewed by an accountant internally. If they pass that, they have an accountant interview that is pretty you know, technical to make sure they really understand their stuff. If they pass that, <laughs> then they have one that is um, with our customer service manager who really looks to see whether they have the customer centricity. And if it's at all on the fence, then they do um, one more interview um, and um, two to four more mock returns. So we, we we have a lot of people applying and not a lot of people getting through yeah. because we're very choosy. Yeah, it's exhaustive. Are, are you part of the process at all? No. So I used to be, and frankly, it was a full-time job. <laughs> so um, I've got, you know, people who are way, way, way better at that than I am that are managing it. Um, a lady who looks after HR, you know, the lady who's looking after um, our, you know, customer service team and has worked with us for six years. Um, you know, the lady who's managing the accountants day to day, who's been with us for three or four years. So um, I actually found I wanted to be part of the process because I really wanted to be talking to every single person that was joining the, the team. And I do talk to them after we've decided to hire them, right? So I, I do kind of a last, you know, get to know you type call. And I've never had to, you know, no one's ever gotten kicked out at that, <laughs> that round. They're they're very well vetted at that point. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but, the you know, what I really realized is that the team is much better at this than me. I'm not somebody with an HR background. So um, I'm very happy that I have people who are that really understand how to do this. Yeah, no, that's great insight. Great observation. Did you did you imagine back then, nine years ago, that you'd have this level of success? I imagine. So, no, not at all. And in fact, if anything, I mean, if you look at some of our initial financial models for the business, we just wanted it to be something that, you know, was sort of big enough to be able to launch us to being able to look at other entrepreneurial ventures. I mean, we just didn't understand the demand that was going to be there. Um, So, no, I mean, it, it sort of surpassed our wildest expectations. All right. So we've touched on it, obviously, but summarize for me again, the services that you offer your clients. Um, So we do tax preparations for Americans who live abroad. We have customers in literally every country around the world. So we can service, um, you know, anybody who is an American that um, needs our help. And we, we operate in a flat fee pricing model. So we essentially have fixed fees for the different services that, that we offer. Um, And the really kind of, you know, um, distinguishing feature about our business versus, you know, any other services that people might be able to find out there is the um, quality of the accountants. So the accountants are all, you know, CPAs or enrolled agents that are um, either U.S.-based or kind of Americans who are living abroad, for example, um, that really have deep expertise in expat taxes and our customer centricity and the customer portal we have that makes it real easy for people to work with us. Yeah. Speaking of all the CPAs, I think they're all, you have them all on your website, right? So I can find out about them and understand who they really are. 
Yeah. So, you know, we, there's some companies that um, just show the, the sort of senior accountants on the right. team. Whereas we have every, every one of our accountants works directly with customers. We don't have kind of a two tier approach. Everybody is, you know, CPAs or enrolled agents with um, five years of experience or more. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Uh, business book or any book that you've read recently that you would recommend? Um, I haven't read this one recently, because but I've read it a million times and we use it every day. And I'd like to recommend a book called Traction, um, which is by Gina Wickman. And it's actually the business that we use, the, the book that we use to run our, what we describe as kind of the operating model for our business. So it really helps to create structure um, and to really look at the different components. So it kind of breaks out, there's seven different components of a business and what you need to make sure you have in place for each Um and really just, you know, makes it very easy. <laughs> you know, it's almost like, you know, here's exactly what you need to do and here's how you need to do it to have that structure and accountability. And it, for me, what was helpful about it is that I was able to have our entire team read it so that instead of this concept of having a very structured business be something that lived in my head and that I needed to constantly communicate, I literally just said to everyone, read this, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to, you know, we're going to, amend it a little bit where it doesn't work for us, right? There are some things that just don't make sense for us. But for the most part, this is kind of the ethos of what we're trying to do. Um, and really kind of got everyone singing on the same hymn sheet. So that's huge. would definitely recommend that for growing businesses. Fantastic. Especially in a remote environment. Yep. I've got it. Uh, I think I mentioned, may I mentioned at the outset, I have it on my desk. Uh, this has been one of the top five books recommended by listeners. And so I have not read it yet, but it's interesting the way you describe it is not what I thought it would be about based on the title. I thought it was going to be more of a marketing focused book, but it sounds like it's much more encompassing than that. Yeah. Good. Thanks for that. We'll have a link to that on the show notes page uh, to this episode of the How of Business. And you can find that on the show notes page at our website. All right, we'll close it up. Last couple of questions, Carrie. One thing that you want us to take away specifically, I, I'm interested in if you're we're speaking to someone who's looking to make that transition in the corporate world like we were, what do you want someone like that to take away from this conversation that we've had today? You know, I, I know this is sort of probably what everyone says, but really just that kind of listen to your gut and don't feel like you need to follow a prescribed path. So, you know, for for most of us, you know, looking at doing exactly what everyone else is doing isn't the right thing, right? So it's it's very, you know, uncommon that, you know, what what looks like success for your best friend or your colleague is the same as for you. So to really, you know, spend time defining that and to to take some time away and then to follow that instinct, you know, so to do it safely, you know, do it with safety nets and, you know, don't go out and take out, you know, huge credit card, you know, <laughs> debt to finance it or any of those things. But, you know, just to be able to to take that leap and feel really comfortable doing that. There's so many people out there that are creating their own path. Um, and the sort of need for working for big corporations is really evaporating. So I would say just to, to, to take the leap and not be afraid. Love it. All right. Where would you like us to go online again to find out more about you and your business? Sure. So um, the the best place is our um, our website, which is www.greenbacktechservices.com. Um, and then for me, it's probably either LinkedIn or Twitter. And um, maybe what I can do is is share with you those addresses, and you can put those in the show notes if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So we'll have all of those links. If you didn't get a chance to write that down, all that will be in the show notes page for this episode. Just search for Carrie McKeegan at the Howa Business and you'll find all of those links. Great, Carrie. This has been a great conversation. Very enlightening. Thanks for indulging all my questions on the journey. So much the, that I took away from that and our listeners will as well. Thanks for being with us today and for sharing. No, thank you. This was was wonderful to, to speak with you. Absolutely. Same here. This is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. My guest again was Carrie McKeegan. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at thehowofbusiness.com. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.